So I think that this is a skill that and a designation that veterinarians should really look at if you're looking to diversify your career. to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in Virginia. And I'm Phil Zeltzman, a board-certified surgeon in Pennsylvania. We are gearing up for the Veterinary Financial Summit, which we are hosting virtually on September 18th and 19th. We are excited to announce that Dave Nickel will be our keynote speaker for the summit. He's going to do a presentation called Business is Booming, But People are Breaking. And he's going to be talking about how to move forward in our careers and in our practices at this point and how to make veterinary medicine more sustainable. And of course, we'll have lots of other presentations and workshops and panels on both personal finance and practice finance. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more and sign up. We really would like to thank our partners. Care Credit is our elite partner. They're, of course, the popular third-party payment provider, as well as Securos, our new gold partner. And they are the fine makers of surgical instruments, orthopedic implants, and suture material. So thank you, Care Credit and Securos. So our guest today is the amazing Melanie Barham. She wears many hats and has worked on a ton of amazing projects, which we'll dive into shortly. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. So, Melanie, so among many other projects, you are the founder of the DVM Project. Could you tell us more about that and how you got started with it? Yeah, the DVM Project kind of came about because I left clinical practice as an equine veterinarian. After I left practice, I joined a surveillance program where I kind of interacted with veterinarians from all different parts of veterinary medicine. And I realized that there were so many career paths that were out there. And it kind of, and I have always enjoyed writing. So I decided at that point that I wanted, and I wanted a hobby and I decided to write about veterinarians who were doing cool things. So I interviewed them um, to showcase some of the interesting careers that we can have. And then from there, it's really grown into a business and a community. So we have a community for veterinarians, a community for technicians or RVTs, and also for students where we talk about career paths and career development. And it's become, you know, we do events, we do courses and coaching and conferences as well. So it's really blossomed over the past four years. This this month, we turn four, actually. Wow. Before we continue, maybe we should have specified where you're based. Where are you? Yeah, so I am in Guelph, Ontario, which is about an hour and a half outside of Toronto. I live very near our veterinary school, and I'm actually right between two of our research stations for the University of Guelph. So how and why did you become so interested in alternative career paths? Yeah, now this probably has a lot to do with the fact that in veterinary school, I was pretty singularly minded. I came into vet school and I thought, oh, maybe I would do large animal or maybe I would do mixed animal practice, but I really enjoyed horses the most. And throughout veterinary school, I kind of narrowed in on on being an equine veterinarian and I became fairly intent on being a really great equine veterinarian in practice. And I don't think anybody could have been more surprised than me when I left practice, but it made sense to me at the time and it, it was a great choice for me at that moment and for my family. So I opted to 
coordinate this new surveillance program that was being started in Ontario uh, through the University of Guelph and the Animal Health Lab. And um, yeah, I started to get all these phone calls from colleagues wondering, you know, why did you leave? And what, what do you like it? And what's the and also how do I leave? Or what's, you know, what else is out there? I never even thought about that. Because I think largely in school, we don't learn about that necessarily. We have probably a little tiny section about public health careers. And there's maybe there is a knowledge about how to become a specialist. Um, I think most of us leave school understanding, you know, how to maybe how to go back to school to be a specialist if we so chose, like it would be fairly, it would have been fairly clear to me how to become a surgeon, but not so much all of these other careers that are out there. And I thought, recently, I've really been pondering this. And um, growing up, my family was actually a foster family. And, um, and for me, one thing that I know for sure is that um, the children who had somebody in their life or who had a sense of belonging really did better in life and they felt a sense of it was easier for them to succeed. And again, this maybe sounds a little far away from careers, but I think really when I'm weaving together all of these little pieces and thinking about why the DVM project started, um, it really upset me when I would have colleagues call and say, um, you know, I don't feel like I belong or my life is changing and I don't know how to fit into practice anymore. Um, and they felt a loss of identity if they didn't continue in practice. Um, I don't know who I would be if I wasn't um, this kind of veterinarian. So for me, I started the DVM project to foster a sense of maybe without even knowing it consciously to foster a sense of belonging to say, um, and I've always said along the way, join us, you belong here. Because I think that any time that you can feel a sense of belonging or people that are like you or people who are um, feeling the same things that you're feeling, you're maybe going to have fewer barriers to success or fewer barriers to getting to the next thing in your life that might be or, or moving along in your journey of your career. Wow. Thank you for sharing. That was profound. Really interesting story. It's interesting how the pieces fall together like that, you know. So was the DVM project, was that the first major project that was non-clinical, that was not your main job that you took on? Ooh, um, good question. Um, so when, yeah, I think when I was in practice, I used to do lots of little, they weren't necessarily little projects, but I did things like I designed a development course for a mentorship and development program for our workplace for our junior veterinarians, you know, worked on how to train our, how to train and mentor our summer students, um, clinic renovations, I guess I took those on as projects. Um, so no, I think those, and, and all the way along, I've done volunteerism type things like working with the Ontario Association of Equine Practitioners as their president and moving projects along in there and other roles that would have been moving, I guess, really moving projects from start to completion. It's just I didn't really look at it that way per se. But I suppose even back to this is going to sound very lame, but back to pony club days, I probably did the same thing. (laughs) Rally prep and all sorts of like, how do we train the younger guys? How do we get the how do we get this to work? So I probably I probably always enjoyed those types of things. So Yes. And so how did you decide to become a project management professional? And and what is a project management professional? Yeah. um, So I think that this is a skill that and a designation that veterinarians should really look at if you're looking to diversify your career. 
And I say this because it's a non-university degree, so you do not have to go back to school for several years, which I think is a real bonus. Um, a project management professional is, it's a formalization of skill sets and trying to bring things, and so it brings together, there's some requirements that go into it, including two, you know, certain contact hours with, um, in a, in a course, in court that are, you know, approved so they can be online or with a university or with a certain, um, organization approved by the Project Management Institute, which is an international organization. And then there's also project time. So time that you spent with projects that you might have undertaken. So all of the little projects that I might have taken on as a veterinarian, even, you know, even things like, um, you know, I counted things like when I put together a binder for all of our trainers that was providing all a, a bunch of information for them It involved multiple bringing in multiple people from our clinic to create this product. Um, you know, the staff training, like all of those things could be considered projects. They're distinct. Um, so project hours count towards your designation and you need to have those, um, in order to get the designation. And then it's a standardized examination. Um, so a standardized exam, we're very used to taking those as veterinarians, whether that's board exams, whether that's NAVLI, we're good at those things. And it's also a lot of the skills that we, are great at. It's foreign terms to us. So imagine you're learning another ology and <laughs> projectology. And it's a lot of like learn and memorize and then synthesize an answer and then synthesize how to succeed in that scenario. So the actual obtaining the designation is something that I think would be in the wheelhouse of a lot of veterinarians for success. And how did I decide to become a PMP? Um, so my husband is actually a PMP. He's an engineer. And I could see how he was applying it. And he works mainly in um, landfill design and in solid solid waste and that type of thing. So very different field. But I could see how it really helped and changed his practice and way of doing things and the way that he approached problems. And even though I approach problems very, very differently than an engineer brain, um, I find it I found it really interesting to watch him. And so when I joined the university, they offered they have a you know, they offer to pay for training. So for some things, so I select, I, I talked to my employer about choosing a PMP and um, they were very supportive and encouraged me to do that. And so I, I worked towards it. It took me about a year to do, to achieve um, a year, nine months, I think, to get ready to do the exam. And, um, and I think the biggest hiccup would be, I think the biggest hiccup for somebody working in practice would be finding the project hours. But I think you could probably get involved. It might be a good stretch goal if you're trying to get involved with other with other projects or volunteerism that you could be part of it. You don't have to be the project manager. You can be part of the project team um, in order for those hours to count. So that's how I got started in it. And the, that's the reason why I chose to do it. But I think the other part of it was just that I thought, wow, I, I could probably get another designation without um, without going back to university. And that seems kind of cool to me right now, as well as the fact that I think it would really, it really helped me in my role where I was at the university, where I am at the University of Guelph, um, just to to really consider problems in a different way and consider how to get to get to an answer and a solution in a in a very different manner than I would have before. So what are some of the sort of broad subjects that you learn about when you're studying to become a PMP? 
Yeah. Um, so I think one of the biggest learnings for me was around stakeholder management, which sounds like a terribly dry topic, like maybe accounting would be worse. Um, but, <laughs> but it actually is so interesting because to me, um, I never really considered, um, like I would just look at it and say, oh, I would look at a problem and be like, okay, well, I have the answer already by myself. Like, that's no problem. I'll just do it and it'll be perfect and everyone will love it. Turns out that's not the way that it usually works. It turns out that most of the time, and then the reason that most projects fail is because we haven't done enough information gathering at the beginning. So if you take, um, let's say, let's take, let's take a clinic renovation, for example. So you decide to renovate your clinic and you're the clinic owner. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not, and I'm 100% not suggesting that every clinic owner needs to be a PMP. But I'm just going to use that as an example because I think it's something that we can all relate to. So we decide to renovate a clinic and you assign a, you hire a company to come in and organize things and, and get a clinic reno done. So you decide to go ahead with it and then they, they've drawn up the plans. You've consulted with the, the company has consulted with the owner and you're happy with them. But turns out, um, as you start building, you realize that you forgot to ask your staff what they thought about it, and you forgot to really consult with them in, in intelligent and clear ways, um, and in ways that they may not have been able to articulate clearly if you just said, hey, Meredith, what do you think? What should we do with this clinic? Um, it kind of takes into, you know, they might not have felt comfortable to say to you, Melanie, that design is the freaking worst. <laughs> like, um, they also might not have <laughs> felt comfortable to tell you, or they might not have had a way to tell you, oh, well, I think you should really put the bathroom door this way because, you know, we're always bumping our, our hip on this door as we're going by with, with dogs, or maybe we could have a slider because of this. Um, so it really taught me to look at, um, it really taught me to look at projects at, with the lens of how, what's the best way to ask our stakeholders at the beginning so that we can encompass all of their ideas and all of their, um, and all of their thoughts, respect, respecting them, looking at power dynamics, looking at how to ask them in ways ask them in ways that you're actually going to get the answers that you need um, instead of a bunch of suggestions that you might not have at, might not have needed or you know in areas that you that you weren't thinking of um, you know like do you you don't need to hear about which way the toilet paper holder should be when you're when you're trying to design the how big the building should be but looking at how to look at that on stages and I think the you know, if you've ever been involved in a reno, you know that there are always delays, there are always cost overruns, um, and there are often things that you wish you had done differently afterwards. And so I think, you know, there's always something where, you know, if you build a house or you have a clinic reno, you're like, well, geez, if we had known, I would have, or there's always some employee who says, well, if they'd listened to me, they would have done this, or they'd ask me, I would have like, I wouldn't have designed it that way. Um, so I think being a project manager allows you to look at that from from a different perspective and look at how to collect information at the front end. It also looks at, so there's kind of that stakeholder engagement and management piece and getting the, really getting your your understanding of what you need to do. So kind of a scope of work, if you will. Um, and then looking at all the other pieces, like how do we manage risk? How do we make changes to this plan along the way? Um, so, you know, if you've been involved in a reno as well, you'll know that sometimes a stakeholder or someone comes in blazing in and all of a sudden you have to rip out a bunch of work and it's really expensive. Um, but because they're a key person in the, in the plan or the bill payer, you have to go ahead and do those things. 
um, or you have to change the plan. So understanding how you and agreeing as an organization or a group how to make changes is so important. Um, I'm going to make sure that when I make it, when I need to make a change, it's brought to so and so. It's done in this way. Like having the group agree on that can make all the difference in the world from hurt feelings and being a huge disaster of a mess that everyone thinks of as. Um, kind of an eyesore of a clinic to being a really amazing clinic that everybody is proud and happy to work in. So Melanie, last year, in the middle of a pandemic, you and a couple of colleagues, uh, namely Ebony Escalona in the UK, who's also a good friend of the Vet Financial Summit, and then Emma Davis in Australia. So the three of you decided to launch the Global Vet Career Summit. Now, this was a ridiculously gigantic worldwide virtual conference with, I think, something like 1,300 participants, 20 hours a day, or five days. Yet, it only took you about three months to put the whole thing together. What kind of magic project management skills did you use to get this done? <laughs> um, pandemic magic? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think, um, so first I think, you know, we had a really lovely team to like a stellar team that we brought together. Um, I can't say enough good things about Ebony and Emma as far as, you know, bringing, bringing us to get, bringing the three of us together was really, it was so energizing to work with them. And I remember saying that repeatedly to my colleagues, like, this is so amazing. It's just so energizing to, it makes me want to work on it a whole bunch because it's really fun. Um, And I think we were united around a purpose, which is something that is really lovely um, from a project perspective and a project success. Like we had a common vision and a common idea, even though we had different viewpoints about how to get there. Um, we had this very clear common vision of what we wanted to achieve. And I think that is something to remember if you were going to apply that to any project is just the like in uniting around the common vision, then collecting stakeholder opinions and figuring out the how after. So I think that was, that was one thing. The other part, we certainly had playing on our side the fact that all of us were locked up at home. So a lot of the time that we would have spent doing other things, we were putting towards this instead. And now I will say that we didn't, I didn't have childcare at that time. So it was definitely hectic for sure, uh, managing kids and work and this too. So again, kind of looking at um, having very efficient meetings understandings of what everyone had to do and be responsible for is really helpful. So clear roles and, and also having a team approach where, you know, oh, okay, I can't do this. Can you do this instead right now? Because it's, it's very important to get this done right at the, right at this moment. I think that is really, those are, were really helpful things that played on our side too. All right. Excellent. So you, you just talked a little bit about it, about using project management skills to help with the Global Vet Career Summit. What about your other roles? What about uh, your, your job at University of Guelph and then your other projects? How has it been valuable for you to use project management skills? So within um, UFG and other endeavors, like organizing other conferences for the, I organized went a couple of years ago, the Canadian Animal Health Lab Laboratorians Network Conference. And, um, and other and other pursuits, I think, uh, you know, within Equestrian Canada and some other volunteer areas, I think that project management helps because it really, um, you know, it really gives you a process to work through. So, um, where I think even if you're a very intuitive leader and a very intuitive um, organizer, 
Um, it can give you a nice process and checklist to work through, and it might give you a chance to think about um, perhaps different perspectives that you might not have had a chance to think through. So if you were thinking about, um, and it, it, I also think it really reminded, it reminds me constantly of the need for collaboration and the and the ways about ways in which we collaborate. So it doesn't. Um, maybe this is maybe this is a bit abstract, but I do think we're kind of I do think that when we collaborate with people, um, still some sometimes you come to the table. And I think I did this very much as a young leader, I would still think that I had the answer. And I just was convincing everybody of the right answer and the right way to go. Um, as opposed to really thinking about, okay, actually, I really do need to hear from everyone around the table in order for this to be a successful project or in order for this to be a successful anything. Um, you can just push your ideas through and do the thing that you think is right. And sometimes you get it right, but a lot of times you get it wrong. So I, I think that part has been really great as well as having a, a system to work through to look at, okay, risk management, change management, um, stakeholder management, figuring out all of the, um, and the financial management and just, just working through some of those processes and, and understanding that, um, do I think you can do it if you don't have a PMP? Yes, you can, for sure. But I think it was just an easier way to shortcut things in the same way that a lot of training is is easier to just shortcut it, right? Or it's easier to open your mind in a really short amount of time. So how about you walk us through the preparation of an open house event at a practice? Okay. So if I was going to approach that... Um, so I think first I'd want to assign somebody to be the project lead or the project manager. So someone who is really engaged in that and can have responsibility for it. So somebody who has enough authority who could, who could like gather their troops around and enough maturity to do it, but also has a lot of, um, interest in the project. So that would be a nice person to assign as the lead. And then I would, I'm going to assume that I, that you've identified me as the project lead. So as the project lead, I would then talk to the person paying the bills because that's usually your primary stakeholder. That's what we'll call them. Um, he who holds the gold gets the say, as they, always, <laughs> as they always say. So I would talk to them about what their vision is, what their budget is, and what they have as a um, as ideas and timeline and what they're thinking of. And then I would start to talk to the other stakeholders in the clinic. So other stakeholders would be people who are involved. So maybe, and that can be your whole staff in a clinic, that can be part of the staff. Sometimes the clinic owner uh, might say, you know what, only pull in Bill and Sally to do this because they're the only ones that have time. But you might still want to have um, have some discussion with the wider stakeholder group, particularly if you're asking for their help with things. So in those stakeholder, like when you're evaluating who's a stakeholder, it's helpful to determine who's your primary one. That would be kind of your, your bill payer and the people and also the people who are heavily invested in that. And sometimes that's your big naysayers, like your people who are like, I hate open houses. That is the biggest pile of garbage I've ever heard of. I don't want to have people in the clinic. So sometimes that's them too, because they can really have a lot of harm to your project. So identify those people, not only by the money that they're paying, but also the weight that they have. So if your negative person is also the most influential person in your practice, then make sure that you really take time to talk to them. Secondary stakeholders might be, you know, if you're, if it's a small clinic, that might be um, your technicians and your, some of your associate doctors um, and tertiary ones might be staff who aren't there very often, who maybe would, maybe they'd be there on the day, maybe they wouldn't care, you know, and they may have a pretty low 
low interest and low influence on the event. So sort of looking at it like high influence and high um, and high interest are your primary people. Mid-level people are your are going to be your secondary and then your tertiary stakeholders. So make sure you've taken into account what their opinions are. So for your primary people, that usually means having a meeting at least and getting something in writing. And I always recommend turning that back to the person and saying, here's a summary of what I heard. Is this right? Oftentimes we don't do that. And then it's not in writing and we have no idea. Or, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a meeting where 10 different people have gone and 10 different people have heard the same message and gone away with different, completely different viewpoints. And that can very often happen when you, um, particularly when when emotions are heightened or if there's, or if people are not paying attention very well. So it's really good to summarize it and have people understand, you know, say, yes, I did. Yeah, that is what I agreed to. So once you've got all collected all the ideas and all of the, you know what budget you're working with, and then I would set out a timeline of events. So oftentimes Excel works really nicely for this, um, a little Gantt chart. And I can certainly whip up even a sample one if you would like, just to, just to lay out the time and some of the tasks. So the tasks would be on the left-hand side and all along the side would be your timeline of events. Like how long is it going to take to organize the food? How long is it going to take to get, um, get something out to the local papers? How far in advance do you have to do that? So it's kind of thinking backwards, like here's the event. What are all the things that have to happen in between? What things can happen at the same time? So that's called in parallel. And what things have what things have to happen after the, the first thing has to happen. For example, you can't eat the food until you have the food at the clinic. So those things have to be in succession versus, you know, I can get the balloons, but also get the food at the same time. So looking at those and planning that out and having person who's responsible for those and getting them to agree to that because it's all fine and good to say like, oh, Meredith's going to pick that up. But if I never say to a Meredith, Meredith, are you okay to do this? Can you do this on this specific day? And Meredith doesn't say back to me, yes, that's no problem, Melanie. Then it then it didn't happen. It's just a plan. Yeah, that that completely makes sense. Yeah. So would you say that you're, you're taking with the influence and interest, or are you actually writing that down on paper and, and charting that out as a, as a project manager? Sometimes I do. Yeah. For big projects, I do for something like, Mm -hmm. for something like this project. Um, I may not write it down that way because that may, um, like if I, you know, if I didn't understand what a, if I didn't know the term tertiary stakeholder, I might be a little offended if I was named as like somebody who has low interest and low, <laughs> but right. I might have that internally for myself, right? Yeah. Um, and I might, I might term it differently and I might say to my employer, I might say, oh, you know what? I know that um, you asked me only to pull, it, pull in Bob and Sally for this, but is it okay if we ask the other people who might be kind of peripherally involved or might be, you know, who we might be asking to help with this? So I'd really like to go ahead and, and just make sure that I've collected their ideas too. Mm-hmm. So, okay. yeah, I think those are, those are like, they're technical terms, but you don't always have to use the technical terms to have the success and use the tool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and that chart would be really helpful. Yeah, because that's something we could link to that in the show notes. Um, so, sure. yes, yeah, so if you if you're up for sharing that, uh, we'd be we'd be happy to have that. Okay. And then Ooh, can I, Meredith, yes. sorry, can I just add, can I just add one more thing to that too? If I was to look at it as well, um, one thing that I would, if I was assigned as the project manager or the project lead, I would also want to set out in the beginning what success looks like and how that would be defined. Because sometimes you will bring a project to completion, but 
you know, some of the stakeholders might say, well, that was a failure and you think it's a complete success. So I think, or, or vice versa, you might think it's a complete failure, but your stakeholders might be happy. So I think it's important to define what that looks like. Like, is it that a hundred people came? Is it that the event happened? Is it that you got positive clinic reviews afterwards? What would the success look like for that? And how can you measure those things? Even if it's intangible, it feels intangible, like, oh, it's that people felt happier with our clinic. How can you measure that? So find find a couple of, for a small project, I would just pick one or two or very few measurable things that you can report back on so that you can say, here's here's how we here's how this event was successful or not successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's certainly important, uh, being able to actually measure your success because, yeah, otherwise, uh, otherwise it's hard to know. It's hard to even gauge, even for yourself, if you, if you haven't set those parameters, then how do you know that you were successful? Before we continue, Melanie, you mentioned a Gantt chart earlier. Can you please define what, what that is? Oh, yeah. Um, For the few listeners who might not know. Sure, yeah. Um, so a Gantt chart is a very nerdy but wonderful tool that um, all who have gone through any clinical school will probably enjoy because it involves a lot of color coding and like and um, and just determining timelines of events. So it is so it's a weighted list tasks that have to be done and make them uh, and make them very, very clear and defined and break them down. So if I was to pick even studying for an exam, I would have get book from bookstore, um, make tabs on book and assure that I get my reading list, assure that I have um, pens on hand, like all of the tasks, however small, like break them down to the break them down to a small level where it makes sense for your team. Obviously, in a million dollar project, you're not going to say like, go get books, get <laughs> get pens. So breaking it down and then figuring out on um, then figuring out on a timeline when that's going to happen, who's responsible for it and how long it can take. Um, and if you want to get really fancy with um, with project planning, there's also, you know, there's some pretty advanced stuff that you can get into that, um, you know, in construction and lots of other industries they use frequently where they look at, OK, what's the minimum time to get through the project? What's the maximum time? What are, you know, what are areas we can shortcut all of those types of things? Um, but in a simple project and when you're getting started, just sorting out, just using Excel is very easy and it just allows you to map out when you're, sh when you, sh what's the deadline for having this done? What's the expected time? Do we think it's going to take two weeks to get a textbook to arrive from the bookstore? Or is it going to take you one week to cram through 300 pages? Or is it going to take five weeks? So all of those things are, are helpful to, to map out. And it does really, you know, it helps to visually see it. And it also helps people be realistic about timelines, because oftentimes we think that it's going to take a short amount of time or people who are overloaded or very busy are like, oh, it's going to take way too long. We can never, there's no way we can get through that. So breaking it down helps both groups kind of come to the middle and see something that's realistic. Yeah. And going back to what you said about success too, I think the other reason it's good to measure success is so you can celebrate when you when you've done well yeah yeah that's right so this might be a hard question or it might not be so how could someone apply these project management concepts to their personal finances yeah i thought this was such a good such a good question so i think that you could probably begin with the goal in mind so 
And everybody's goal with finances is very different. So I think that probably defines all everybody's different approaches. So for example, if my goal is to retire and live on my farm the rest of my days and but retire at 65 and not really travel a lot, you know, just hang out on my farm doing projects um, to improve my farm, then that's going to be a very different retirement than somebody who says, yeah, I want to, I want to retire and live on a beach somewhere and travel 90% of my time. Or maybe somebody who says, I actually kind of want to have many retirements throughout my whole life and I want to I want to work remotely all the time and I want to travel most of the time and I want to continue I want to just kind of live like that from the time that I'm 25 until I'm 85 if I can. And maybe I'll stop working or maybe I'll just do something different. So I think that looking at your goal might be really helpful understanding that your goal might change um, and projects change too. I mean no project. I, I can't remember any project that has kept their entire, like exactly everything perfectly the exact same way that you thought it was going to be when you started. So I feel like we need to let go of that with our lives and our careers too. It's not going to be the plan that we had in um, and when we were four, when we decided to be veterinarians or technicians or whatever. It's It can evolve and change. It just means you redefine your project and you you know, you make you make differences. So I think with finances, it'd probably be the same thing. So look at what you plan to have and plan to require when your goal is in mind. And maybe your goal involves retire involves that retirement goal of six at 65, you're going to travel a whole bunch, or maybe, um, and what would you require all the way along to feel happy and comfortable, and then working backwards, looking at your stakeholders. So maybe that's a spouse or maybe that's family members because maybe family members are like, uh, I was expecting you to take care of me for the rest of my days. Crap, add an extra hundred grand on that retirement plan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe my child doesn't have any aspirations to leave my basement. So maybe I better make sure that I can build on a, I don't know, a really big garage with a loft, like all of those kind of things taking into your stakeholder, <laughs> into account your stakeholders, and then figuring out how do you move forward with that and plan it out with your with step by steps, I guess, following the following the great advice that you that that you folks have. Thank you. So you recently created a negotiation course. Can you tell us more about it and how it even came about? Yeah, for sure. So I used to be a very bad negotiator, <laughs> a very bad negotiator. And, um, and I, because I really love to please people and I don't, and I think that, um, maybe a lot of us grew up in cultures that were like this, that taught us that it wasn't very polite to talk about money and not very polite to ask for things. Um, and all the way along in school, we're taught that if you keep your head down and you work really hard, then someone will give you a good grade, which is the reward. Um, and then you leave school and the rules are all different. Um, no one is like, you did an amazing job, Melanie. I'm going to give you a lot of money. Um, maybe if you have a unicorn boss, but very rarely does that happen. Um, so I realized um, that I had to get better at negotiation and I started learning about some of the challenges that that women face with negotiation and some of the techniques that you can use to get better at negotiation and ways to think about shift your mindset and i started applying them and 
I got to be a little bit better. And I shared them with other people in my life, other colleagues and friends, and they got to be a bit better. And, you know, I remember the first time that I shared some of the techniques with a friend of mine and, um, you know, just first of all, just asking and making a good case for why you wanted to have a raise. And she got an extra $10,000. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so fantastic news. So I, um, so then I sort of solidified that with project management because a lot of some parts of the project management um, training talk about contracts and how to look at contracts and how to, um, and how to negotiate them a little bit. And then through the MBA program, we worked a lot on, um, on different skills that, that built up that negotiation skill set. So I just thought, I would bring it together into a course. I've taught it at the University of Guelph as well. Um, so I knew how to design a course. And so I, I brought it together into an online course. And it's really my hope that that um, that this isn't an adversarial course against um, clinic owners or employers. My sense is actually that employees who ask for what they want and need are much more likely to stay. And they're much more likely to be able to clarify for their employers how they can be motivated and how they and what motivates them and what they actually really need. Um, but if we can't say it and we can't ask for it, then it's pretty hard to achieve that. It's pretty hard as an employer to meet the needs of an employee who never tells you what they want. Um, it's pretty hard to guess. Yeah, certainly is. Yeah, because some of us want more time off. Some of us want a different schedule. Some of us want more money so we can pay off our student debt. Um, it just depends. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Melanie, what are your favorite tips for colleagues who are negotiating an employment contract? Um, yes. So, I think my top tips are, um, one is to ask for what you want. Um, and even though, even if you're afraid to, and even if you are worried that, um, even if you're worried that it's not going to go well, um, ask anyways, because if you don't ask, then it probably won't happen. Um, and somebody told me once, um, that, you know, you, you have to ask for what you want when you sit on Santa's lap. And I think that's kind of a crude way of saying you do need to, you need to have your ask ready as well. Um, so make sure that you never throw out a number or an, uh, you know, an offer to an employee or to an employer that you don't have backup for. So some people will say, okay, I'm going to go in really high. And even though I kind of want less than that, and that's okay to go in high with an offer, but make sure that you have some numbers to back that up so that somebody doesn't call your bluff. So, or have a value proposition for that. So if you have the AVMA, um, salary guide, or you have your local VMA salary guide, or you've consulted with, um, you know, if you're, some, some places will publish what they're paying, um, if it's a public organization, or sometimes universities will. And, you know, make sure that you've done your research so that you have an idea um, of what that what you're asking for is realistic. And not only this is what other people are getting paid, but here's why I'm I'm better um, than that average number. Here's why I should get a bit more than that. Here's why I am worth more to you than that. So you don't have to go in and act like somebody else. Um, act like yourself and share and share it in words that that make sense to you. 
So I think those would be my, those would be my top tips for both employers and employees. Like, you know, if you're an employer and you're making an offer to an employee, if you're hoping to join your clinic or, or join your organization, um, I hope that you make them a fair offer and that you can back it up. Um, I hope that you share why you start them at this wage and then, you know, what your plan is to develop them and what are all the other things that you bring to them. And if you're an employee, I hope that you go in and talk to your employer and say, you know, I've been on production for X amount of time, but here's the thing. Um, I'm finding that I actually really value time off more. So I'm wondering if I could flip some of this over into, into another area. Um, and here's why, or here's why I think that I should get a better base pay because I've consistently produced above, above my base for X amount of years. Um, so I'd like to request this. And, and I think those are, those are frank conversations and they don't have to be, they don't have to be adversarial. Um, and two other things that might, that you might want to consider, um, is that when you're comparing salaries, uh, make sure that you're comparing total compensation, that you're not thinking of, okay, here's just the dollar. So Phil told me he makes X amount of dollars, but then I'm only making this amount of money, but then you might get a really amazing benefits package where Phil doesn't, or maybe you take Maybe you take four weeks off a year and Phil only takes one. Um, so there, look at total compensation um, and look at what those things are worth to you as a person and for your health and for your well-being and sustainability of your career before making a final decision. Um, and then the other thing that I would really consider is about emotions. So all of us, all of us have a story that comes with us when we come to a negotiation and all of us have been told things throughout our life about money and about how we should behave around money and about asking for things. And so be aware that not only are you coming with a story, but your other person who you're meeting is coming with a story too. So it doesn't mean that you can't find a way to meet in the middle, but behaviors that you think are acceptable might not be acceptable to them and vice versa. So it's very important to use some of the skills that you've learned in practice to deal with difficult clients to deal with these same scenarios. Like if you, it's the same as any emotionally charged scenario where you want to fact check and say, geez, Phil, it seems like you're getting really defensive. Um, Meredith, it seems like you're feeling a little bit upset. Is that, am I right? And talk about those things because it isn't, it generally, we all want the same thing to work together for a long period of time. And we, and we want, and most employers want people to be fairly compensated and feel happy in their jobs. And most employees want to really like their bosses and they want to work there and they want to have a long-term relationship. It's kind of the stories and the, and the ways that we interact around negotiation that can really spoil things sometimes. So can you give us some other situations where vets would use negotiation in their career? I'm thinking of one off the top of my head with um, suppliers. And how can we learn to communicate better in those situations? Because I think inherently we're, as a profession, I don't think we're very good at that intuitively. So I actually think that we use negotiation all the time. If you're a parent, you're negotiating with your children constantly. I negotiate with my son to eat breakfast or put on pants or do all sorts of things, you know, and, or you're negotiating with your spouse, like, where should we go out for dinner or your friends? Like who's coming, who's bringing wine to the party? Like, these are all things that are negotiations. We just don't really peg them as that. And anytime that you're advocating for an animal in clinical practice anyways, definitely you're negotiating. You're negotiating with the client to help them understand the value that you're bringing with the with what you're trying to help them with. Um, so they brought you a problem. 
in the same way that you know, the employer is bringing you the problem and saying, hey, I need somebody to fill this position. And you're saying, okay, well, here's what I have to offer. Um, and the same thing when you're talking to a client, they're bringing you a problem of an un- unhealthy or unwell pet, and you're bringing them solutions to those problems. Um, sometimes they don't realize that there's a problem there <laughs> and you have to tell them. And that's the same in a negotiation with salary. Um, sometimes the employer doesn't realize that you are underpaid or sometimes they don't realize that you were doing a whole bunch more than you, than they knew about. Um, so actually we negotiate all the time. I think what, um, I think what I've realized is that veterinarians are actually much better at advocating for others than, um, than they are for themselves. And the same thing, you know, suppliers is a, is a great example of negotiation too, because it really talks, you know, it really is saying, okay, here's our power as a clinic or as a buyer, and here's what you have to offer as a supplier. Now, where can we, how can we realize some efficiencies here? Um, a lot of us just sign the contract and we say, okay, perfect. I'm going to X lab. I'm going to always use you. And this is the deal on the table. So that must be it. So I think we can start to open those conversations and say, what am I willing to do to get a better deal? And what are they willing to do in order to give that? Or what would they need to have in order to give that better deal? So there's all sorts of different ways that you can think about it. Um, and so what I would challenge everyone listening to do is to, you know, if you have, um, if you can even think of a low stakes thing to try it out on, like if you're buying something off of Craigslist, see if you can haggle with that person. I mean, just for kicks, like, especially if you hate that kind of thing. If you're like, ew, haggling, that sounds awful. Ooh, I bet you, you should really try it because you never know what might happen. Or try it out with a supplier next time or try it out just, or just think twice before you sign something blindly um, and just take the deal on the table because it's possible that you might get more out of it. They might get more out of it. um, And you might be both happier. It might be a really a double win. You might be happier than you could have ever imagined. So give it a try. Yeah, I like that tip of starting with the the low stakes conversations. That's that's a good one for folks who are either early in their careers or just uh, just when they hear negotiation, they they just hate hearing, <laughs> just hate the word, you know. Mm-hmm. So, Melanie, what important question do you think we should have asked you? So, I know I should have an answer for this, but <laughs> I don't know actually. Um, Let's negotiate a good answer. <laughs> okay. Oh, <laughs> terrible. Um, maybe. Mm, how about what podcast I'm listening to? Yes. Oh. So I was one. That's a it. question I'm always curious to know. Now, it's not anything about finances, but I really have enjoyed. Um, I've really been enjoying Malcolm Gladwell's um, revisionist history because I think it really challenges. It challenged me to think of things very differently. It takes. Uh, I don't know if you have you guys listened to it. No? no, oh, it's very, it's very good. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, like the with his writing. Um, but he takes problem things that we have like as known, written in stone things in history, and he unpacks them and looks at it from a completely different angle, and looks at is it still true, um, or is it, or is there more to the story? And I think it's really, it's very cool. It's very neat. Yeah, we'll definitely have to check that out. That sounds cool. He's also local to my area. He doesn't live here anymore, but he grew up not too far from here. So, Oh, neat. So, Melanie, so that brings us to our final question. What is your best advice for our listeners? Oh, goodness. Um, 
That's a very big question because there's a lot of advice out there. Um, don't take all the advice that's given to you because some of it is garbage. Um, you'll have to decide what advice is good for you. And I preface that first before giving advice. Um, I, I think that you should keep an open mind about your career because there's so many things that are out there for us as veterinary professionals. And there are so many different ways that we can help animals and help achieve the goal that we set out to do when we were just little people trying to decide, you know, deciding to be veterinary professionals. There are so many ways to achieve that. You don't have to lock yourself into the way that, that you, that you knew all, all the way along. Um, there are lots of just when there's open doors, you should take them. Love it. Yeah. I love it too. Well, thank you, Melanie. Thank you for chatting with us. I think the word negotiation is carry for a lot of people. And, um, and I think consciously or not we probably think that it means that one is going to be the winner and one's going to be the loser when in fact it probably should be looked at differently maybe worded differently it's 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 a conversation you know talk about ways to make it a win-win situation where everybody can be happy with the outcome maybe that's a better way to frame discussions in the future yeah phil i'd like for you to work on a word i think i think i'd like for you to work on a word that would be better (laughs) conversation conversation i think that would be good yes yeah let's have a conversation then everyone will run from having conversations (laughs) (laughs) but it doesn't have to be bad right it really doesn't so thank you for summing it up so well it can be a happy thing most times it is so thank you thank you for hanging out with us this was really good this is a lot of fun thank you very very much keep up the good work thanks Melanie. Melanie gave us some fantastic tips on negotiation. We are hosting two sessions related to negotiation at the Virtual Vet Financial Summit. Phil and I are hosting a panel called The Ideal Contract, which is going to have Christopher Allen, who is a DVM and an attorney, and also Jonathan Light, who is a veterinarian and a practice owner. And they're going to be talking about how to make contracts a win-win for both sides. And then Jim Clark from UC Davis is going to do a negotiation workshop at the summit. And so you'll learn about the ideal contract, and then you'll also learn how to negotiate to get it. We'd love for you to join us virtually September 18th and 19th. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to sign up. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.